Well, every now and then we have a bad run, don't we? Stuff that worked last time doesn't work this time. People let us down again. Expenses go up a lot for no reason. I've heard a bit of a story about that with fuel and uh, prices of chemicals this year. And then the returns seem to get nibbled away by inflation and then the prices don't necessarily help us out. The weather can be fickle and sometimes stuff goes missing. And a farming community such as we are knows about having a bad run. We've been there. Well, trying to work out what's happening in a bad run, trying to explain why, is actually a universal question, isn't it? It's a universal task that mankind has been thinking about for a long time. If you were over in the Eastern world, they would talk about something called karma. And that you see, they can't see any link between how we live our life and what you get. And so they say, oh, well, there must have been a current life somewhere that's affecting us in ways we can't see, so it must just be karma. And in fact, there are dozens and dozens of explanations about why bad stuff happens to good people. People have been developing explanations for that since the beginning of time. Well, today we're going to look at one of the oldest books of the Bible, the book of Job. We're going to have three messages on Job. Uh, and that's where we go to say what happens when bad stuff happens to good people. Why do we have bad runs from time to time? So will you pray with me? Gracious Lord, please understand us how to live in this amazingly beautiful but sometimes wild and untamed world which you created. And thank you for what we'll learn from your word today. Amen. So we've got this guy Job. Where does he live? It's very close to Oz. It's Uz, the land of Uz. And uh, if you're interested, you can follow the red arrow and find out where he was. And they say this book's written around about the time of Abraham, the patriarchs, those old times. And there, there it is, as Job's hometown. And who was he? From the book of Job, chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll be in chapter 1 a bit today. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. And as you read through the book of Job, it's kind of confirmed that this guy is a man of integrity, a man who was doing everything the right way. His friends, they could find no fault with him, although as the book goes along, they tried to invent stuff to justify their explanation of why things are happening to him. But it starts off, and he's a guy with a lot of treasures. He's got seven sons now sons were considered very much treasure in those times and seven is like the complete number so it's like the fullness as many good sons as you can have he had them and what's more even had daughters as well i wonder whether we have as much stock in the region as what he had seven thousand sheep plus three thousand camels plus 
500 yoke of oxen. Now I understand a yoke is two, so that's a thousand. Thousand cows. 500 donkeys. That's a lot of land to, to feed all that, isn't it? And then he had heaps and heaps of staff. And put it all together, you have this description of him in verse 3. He was the greatest man amongst all the people of the East. The greatest guy. And then he also had a good family life because they would have birthday celebrations for all the kids. And you say, all the kids? You've got to remember in those days women weren't thought, that, thought all that highly of. And so if the men wanted to really cut loose and have a party, they just didn't invite the women. But the women got invited. So they loved their sisters as well. Good family life. And then when the parties were all finished, the annual round of parties, we get a clue about how Job thought about God, his concept of God, in verse 5 of chapter 1. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he'd sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And that was his regular custom. And so you can see from that verse that God is concerned with doing whatever he can to stay on the right side of God. And he knows there's sin. And he knows sin needs to be dealt with somehow. And he knows that he needs to take religious precautions on a regular basis to deal with this sin. And he loves his kids, so he takes precautions even on their behalf. And remember, this is before Jesus, way before Jesus, way before people knew that you had to have a personal relationship with Jesus to be forgiven for your sins. It was in those times it was you made sacrifices for sins. And so in all that, Job's winning. He's winning in all departments. And then we're going to come to a very startling point, part of the story. We've got the Satan, the accuser, negotiating in a scene with God to mess with Job. Verse 6. It's a sort of a courtroom scene you can imagine in heaven. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. And I said the Satan, the, the Satan. It's sort of like in a courtroom scene. There's one guy whose job is to try and accuse. He's like the district attorney. And this is the role that Satan's taken up here. And the Lord says to this guy, he says, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, is it from roaming throughout the earth, going backwards and forth on it? And the Lord said to Satan, hey, have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless, he's upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Well, what's he going to say? Well, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, haven't you put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands. So that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. What about this? You just stretch out your hand. You strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. 
Well, the Lord thought about that and he said, oh, very well then. Everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, don't lay a finger. And suddenly many questions come to our mind, don't they? Does Satan really have such a discussion about us? Is God somehow involved in this bad stuff which happens to us? Do we really only get blessed because God puts a hedge around us in our household? Is the removing of goods and possessions and family a way of testing whether we'll curse God or not? I'm not going to answer those questions now. We've got to wait to the end of the book. But they are answered, but they're not answered in the way you would expect. A bit of patience. And then what happens? The worst possible disaster scenario. All of the kids and the oxen and the donkeys and the camels and most of the servants are wiped out in a day. They suffer the equivalent of the worst possible bushfire devastation. It was like if we had a really bad bushfire in Australia. So bad that everything, including the kids, is gone. And there he is back to square one. And you're thinking, well, if it happened to me, what would go on? Well, let's see what happened to Job, verse 20. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground in worship. He fell to the ground in worship. And he said, well, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all of this, Job didn't sin by charging God with wrongdoing. He didn't blame God. And I don't know how we're feeling, whether we could be as noble about it as God. The average sort of knee-jerk reaction to such a disaster as this would be, to ask that one word question, why? Why me? Why now? Where is the sense in all this? Some years ago I did a three-month chaplaincy course at Royal Perth Hospital and I was on duty one Christmas day. I got called in to talk with this guy. He'd had an accident on Manning Road. His wife had died. And he was in the midst of asking that same question. Why? Why did it happen? And I asked him, do you think there is an answer to why? And he thought about that. And he was able to leave then the, the why did it happen, let it go. Because he realised there was actually no real answer to why. 
but how we want there to be an answer, how we want there to be a link between something we did and the result that was obtained. We want to know why so we can stop it happening again or why so we can prevent it happening in the first place or why so we can blame somebody and sue someone. That whole idea is a big idea and it could be called the judicial concept or the moralist concept or they call it theodicy and it's this idea that if there's a good God and you put in the good works you should get a good life. It doesn't seem fair. If you're a good guy and you do good things then God will bless all your goodness with heaps of his goodness. Theodicy it's called. It's a notion of justice or fairness. It's only fair. But there's a problem and the problem is evil. Evil exists. Let's talk about four types of evil. First is natural evil, you know, the fact that things decay. If you leave the milk out of the fridge, it goes off. There's death. Things die. There's wildness. You only have to go and see, uh, sit down the seashore during a storm. There's calamities happen, diseases, disasters, catastrophes, viruses. Stuff happens. It's not personal because there are powerful forces that exist in the nature. So there's natural evil and there's moral evil. And that's the internal, the personal evil, the thing that dominates the human race. Out of the heart of man comes all manner of evil thoughts and, and it's the... It's our lusts and our appetites and our desires and they produce a crop often of sinful stuff. We are so many of us, all of us, immoral people sort of colliding together in a dangerous world. Moral evil. And then there's supernatural evil. There are spiritual forces and, and, aimons, and demons and angels. We see one, we see the overall scope of that in 1 John chapter 5 we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one and you remember Revelation talks about a third of the angels of God being cast out of heaven and getting about under the control of the evil one we saw it quite clearly if you read the Gospels you see uh, a lot of Demons breaking out and Jesus dealing with them uh, when God comes into plain view by becoming one of us. And the, these forces have a sort of a delegated sovereignty in the world. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And temporarily, it's a long temporarily, but he has a right to rule over the world system. And we think we can see that in recent developments in, in our society. And underneath him, there's a force of demons they're using their powers to seduce and deceive humanity, to fight against the purposes of God. And they want to develop false religious systems and sell doctrines which ultimately come from the evil one. And this is quite clear. In Ephesians 6 verse 12, what's our struggle against? It's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. It's against the authorities. It's against the powers of this dark world. And it's against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
So that's another type of evil. And then the fourth type of evil is the one that's going to last forever. The evil of hell for all the people who are there. And so when we're asking why there's this problem of evil, it's not just present in the world, it's pervasive, it's subtle, it's powerful, it's dominant, it's outside of us, it's inside of us, it's around us. And then in the face of that we have Job who's a shining example. Job 1, remember it said, this man was blameless and upright and what did he do with evil? He feared God and shunned evil. Well, we go to chapter 2 now of Job. Uh, God boasts again about him to the accuser. Verse 3, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless, he's upright, he's a man who fears God, he shuns evil, and still he mean, maintains his integrity. Although you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. And Satan's still thinking, oh, I can get a win here, I can get a win. And so he says, in verse 4, skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all he has for his own life. Now, just stretch out your hand, strike his flesh and bones, and he'll surely, he'll surely curse you to your face then. Because Satan wants to take away even more. He wants to take away his health. And so he afflicts him with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crowns of his head. And as you marvel that God would allow this, do note there's still a limit. Verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. You must spare his life. And Satan can't disobey that. He has limits to what he can do. And this is a big pointer to the fact that God still has the real power. Satan only has a delegated authority for a season. And I find that encouraging and I hope you do too. And even though we wouldn't draw the limits in the same place as we find life hands them out to us, we're still encouraged to know that God limits what happens to us. And so Job now loses his health too. And if that's not enough, pain... The remaining family member, his wife, also tells him, mate, you're thinking like a fool. His wife says to him, verse 9 of chapter 2, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die, mate. He's basically telling, she's basically telling him, this idea of integrity you have, mate, it's not working. Because she's coming out of that theodicy, that idea that says if God's a good God and he's a powerful God and you're genuinely following him then he should be looking after you because that's the point of having a godly protector isn't it if bad things are happening it means either your God's not strong enough or he doesn't really love you and so well get rid of this God and find another more powerful one that's what she's saying but Job understands that God is far more 
than just a protector. That is just one aspect of God because his divinity, his godness is a reality far greater than just this protecting function. Think about this. God brought this whole beautiful, marvellous, but wild and wonderful world into being just by speaking. And the God who's sustaining all this life has, as well as protecting, he has governing functions. He has leading functions. He has planning and providing for the universe functions. And although Job at this point didn't understand so much of how incredibly infinite God was, he still knows enough to say to his wife at this time, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all that, he didn't sin from what was said. And that's an amazing place to be, that Job didn't sin in what he said. And the rest of the book shows he continues to be blameless all the way through. That doesn't mean that he's got his concept of God completely correct either because he has to get some severe talking to by God later down the track. Nevertheless, he comes out squeaky clean. And we'll look at how he gets there in the next two messages. You'll be glad to know I'm not going to spend as much time on the book of Job as some other people did. The great reformer John Calvin preached 159 sermons on the book of Job. That was in 1554. One other great Puritan preacher uh, who was in the pulpit, I don't know if you've ever heard of John Owen, but he was the guy before John Owen. He preached on the book of Job for 23 years. Just imagine, you could go, grow up, go away, have kids come back 20 years later and you're still preaching on the book of Job. They did say that the congregation dwindled. <laughs> they have greater understanding. Well, okay. Well, to finish off today's overview, I'd like to share uh, the Bible Project's version. gives you a good overview of the book of Job. If you like it, look it up on the uh, YouTube and we'll see how the guys go with uh, clicking the button and see what we get. Pretty stimulating. There's <coughs> a lot just in one go. You go, whoa. But uh, that's good. So let's bring it to a conclusion. This idea there's a judicial God, that's very persuasive, that idea, a good God and if good works, put them together, you should get a good life. And, and Jesus, what does he say? He looks at this idea in John chapter 9, verse 1, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What's Jesus' answer? Neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
the works of God can be expressed as the glory of God. So by the end of Job, we see there's no bigger game in town than, sorry, sorry, we see there's a bigger game in town than just this question of whether we're going to get a cushy ride out of life or not. And the bigger thing is the glory of God. The glory of God. A glorious divine being created this universe with all its complexity and beauty and brilliance and we live in that creation and if we don't pay attention to the one who made it, if we don't give appropriate attention to the glorious God who created the life which is a gift to us, the very breath in our lungs is a gift to us, then we're, it's a travesty if we don't give him the glory because all of life proclaims there's a glorious God who gave life. And instead of grumbling over our lot, we need to learn something from Job. 2 verse 10. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Can we be like Job in all this and not sin in our response to what life hands to us? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we can learn from it. Let us all acknowledge how glorious you are and in everything we do seek to give you the glory. Amen.